everyone, welcome back to the show. I am very excited about today's guest. Pat, welcome to the show. Thank you. All right, so for the uninitiated, for people who don't know, who are you and what do you do? Sure. Um, my name is Pat Piccolo. Um, I am a traditional sign painter by trade. Um, I'm also a full-time parent and foster parent, and that takes up so much of my life right there. But I also try to do other fun things, too. Awesome. All right, let's start professionally. Yeah. I want to talk about like specifically what you do, the industry, like because it's an it's a very interesting industry. I want to talk about that, uh, how you got into it, talk a bit about your career, how you built it up, how you built up the business, and then let's go into the personal after that. Great. All right. So tell us what's the name of your company. Um, I actually have just totally avoided any kind of company name, and it's really just me, like. I'm the person you talk to on the phone. I'm the person that reads the emails and it's just my name on the card. So I've decided to, you know, not expand yet. Um, and especially because I don't have like a storefront, I do have a separate shop, um, but I have it as kind of an appointment only thing. And so I've kept it where it's just me. So my email is signs by Patrick. Um, you know, Patrick the sign painter, Pat the brush guy, that kind of thing. How do so, people even find out about you? 99% um, of it seems to be word of mouth. Um, you know, uh, a lot of my clients are people that I've known for, you know, many, many years um, who decide to open up a small business of their own, like RJ with Timeless. Um, a, you know, I paint a lot of signs for RJ, um, and you know, people see me doing it. It it takes longer than slapping up some stickers on a window. So I'm there kind of all day doing something, and the neighboring businesses see me. People walking by see me. I've got a little sign that I've painted that people can take a picture of that has my contact info, and that you know, I feel like that is really the best way for me to do any kind of advertising because there's no question asked about like what exactly I do. You're seeing me do it. Um, you see the finished product. You see me, you can chat with me. Um, and it's really personal. I find people who um, have a business that, um, you know, wants to cater towards, um, you know, something handmade or unique. They want their sign to you know, also be handmade and unique because why would you want like some computer generated thing to sell some handcrafted goods? So, yeah, then I would say that, you know, another good portion comes from like social media, Instagram, which really is just kind of an offshoot of that. If you think about it, um, you know, people will tag me in their posts and they'll see it and I'll get messages through there. and. I'm terrible at responding on Instagram, so I'm like, please email me. <laughs> so, like, tell us about the industry. Like, yeah. what is, because, like, what you do is very traditional. Yeah. It comes from, like, a long history of it. So what is signed, because you also do murals, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so tell yeah. us about the industry. Um, yeah, it really runs the gamut. I kind of say I do pretty much anything with a brush. Um, and... Um, a big portion of what I do will be a large scale, you know, duplication of somebody's existing logo 
for um, for like corporate clients, you know, I'll paint um, a mural that somebody else designed and they're like, okay, we want this mural here at this size. And that's kind of really the bread and butter of a lot of what I do. Um, because not everything can be, you know, done with like a vinyl mask, which is one technique that's not the traditional way to do it, where you, you like, you know, like it's similar to silk screening and they'll just like roll over uh, the vinyl mask instead of going in with a brush and painting it. But not all surfaces and of course not all, uh, not, not at every scale is that even economical. And so there's, even though it is a niche, thing there is still like a practicality component to a lot of what I do especially when I'm you know working on large scale like that so um, I try to use that portion of of my work to kind of be the base of it and then uh, I can really focus on the stuff that I really enjoy which is the design aspect of it because I really like to do traditional design um, whether it's lettering or traditional style murals like I try to do stuff that's more mid-century like WPA style or um, you know like uh, something that you would see uh, like faded ghosted out uh, from a mural or a, a image that was painted for commercial purposes uh, 70 years ago or something like that so yeah because it's clear like not just what you're saying now but also when we were talking uh, before the show started you care about the history of, of what you did, what you do. And also we're talking about how it's like, it kind of has a lot of meeting points with tattoos, with mm -hmm. tattoo culture. Yeah. So for someone who's like total like neophyte, never heard of this stuff, like what is it specifically that the industry does? Like, cause like when we're hearing murals, I've always wondered, even from a little kid, it's like, how the hell do they do these things? Yeah. So like, what's the history of it? And like, what is it specifically? Sure. Um, I mean, you know, the history of it really started, um, you know, two, three hundred years ago in the way that we can recognize it. Um, you know, introduction of the printing press made, you know, the availability of the, the written word and people understood and you didn't have to do pictorial signs anymore. And so lettering as an art form really blossomed and kind of post-industrial revolution daring industrial revolution a little bit um you started seeing um you know the the artistic side of lettering come out as the population became more literate and so i always kind of think of that time period as the real birth of sign painting as we know it because prior to that it would be like you'd have a pub with the fox and goose and there'd literally be a picture of a fox and a goose or like you know like um, King George's would be just like a picture of King George because a lot of the population wasn't literate. And so once literacy really started to blossom, you started to see, you know, more lettering and you wanted to have um, more ways of differentiating your product or whatever it is that you're trying to emphasize. Um, and yeah, I feel like that that was the real birth. And, um, you know, in a pre-computer era, all of that was done, you know, by hand using, you know, math sometimes, using a brush, um, using rollers when those were invented. Um, but, you know, done with a person sitting at a desk, then moving to an easel, then moving to a wall. So 
Um, I think for me personally, um, I really try to honor the traditional methods of sign painting, not just going out there with my quill brush and um, lettering, like that's the kind of end product. And it's, there's, that's great to do that by hand, like that's a skill within itself. But um, I've always had a keen interest in um, hand drafting, opposed to drafting stuff out on the computer. Um, I don't think that there's anything wrong with it. I mean, I definitely utilize computers when, you know, a client sends me their digital file of their logo or something like that. Um, and I can go at it from that angle. But if somebody was were to come to me and be like, I have this project idea, um, I really utilize everything I know about the kind of more, you know, antiquated ways of doing graphic design and, um, you know, traditional methods of sign painting, where I start out with a piece of paper and a pencil and kind of go from there. I have like a library of, you know, physical books with different alphabets and have spent many years studying layout and that kind of stuff. And I try to incorporate all of that and create something that you know, ends up being really unique and clearly different than something that would be created on a computer um, to me and to other people who, you know, pay attention to that kind of stuff can notice the, the little differences. So, yeah. First of all, I was, like when you connected that, the, the creation of the printing press and literacy becoming more widespread and that idea because i was going to ask you like i didn't want to interrupt you but i was like does that mean that signs literally were before like you know like a fox and a hen yeah, yeah. that is wild yeah and it also is like once something changes i was just talking about this with some clients yesterday like once something changes it's like almost impossible to remember when it wasn't like that yeah. so we were talking about uh, smartphones yeah and it's like if you had said to someone like, I don't know, like however, like 20 years ago, or maybe I guess 30 now, where it's like, oh yeah, you're going to have all this stuff on the phone, they'd be like, that sounds crazy. Right. But now I could never imagine not having that. Right. And it's just such a thing. So it's like the printing press creates this change that's like for you and I, it's, it's so long ago. Of course, we're not going to think about it. But like there literally was a time where it's like books were handwritten. Mm-hmm. Or I guess there were other methods of probably of printing, but uh, they were done in shorter runs. Right. And then you've got something like the printing press. Right. Changes everything, increases literacy, huge leap forward for, for people. But how that would change how people, how businesses communicate with their clients is insane. I would have never thought and of that. And changed our visual landscape. Like if you think about a you know, pre-advertisement city um, compared to a city in the you know turn of the last century, um, it would look completely different. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty pretty crazy to think about. Well, and also the way that people communicate with their clients yeah. and uh, kind of attract attention to their businesses. I'd imagine the the impact of technology has continued to play in. So I'm like already thinking of like neon signs. Mm -hmm. And now at one point, at least when I was a kid, like neon signs were a huge thing where they seem right like less prevalent now right yeah yeah and also created things like um you know city codes and regulations regarding um advertisement and what was actually allowed and what wasn't allowed i think the neon sign was like pretty much the you know nail in the coffin for creating city ordinances because 
you had these like really loud, bright things. And, you know, some people felt like it really blighted the city. Um, and, you know, sometimes maybe it did. I think it's kind of cool to see those pictures of, you know, cityscapes where it's just so much neon and crazy stuff. Um, and neon is always hand bent too. That's something that, you know, you don't think about like all the neon you see, that's actually a person that is there bending it. Sometimes it happens like in assembly line style in China now, but it's still people. Um, that's crazy. I had yeah, no idea. Yeah. It's neon is it's like a whole nother thing. And it's also really cool. And I have no experience with it, but it's on my bucket list to someday incorporate neon into my business too. So, yeah. So like a business like yours and an industry like this, it's like, it's a niche thing, mm -hmm. but it seems like, you know, with the, with technology moving faster and faster and faster or more ways for people to like connect with people and make them aware of what they're doing. It's still, it's kind of like vinyl records. It's like right. vinyl kind of seemed like it was going away, but then it was like, no, people have that connection to vinyl. It's that personal connection yep. to it. Is that similar to That's a super good analogy in my opinion. I've, I've, I've tried to use that before when explaining, um, I think, um, in the mid to late eighties, um, vinyl lettering became a thing and started to replace just people coming in and doing hand lettering for things like window signs and you know they've really um, used vinyl everywhere you can you most signs you see these days are some sort of vinyl um, like adhesive sticker like if you look on a lot of windows and stuff um, and that like pretty much killed traditional sign painting. Um, everybody one day was like, I can do 10 jobs in a day where I used to be able to do one. Um, they just put their brushes down and, you know, these are people that had spent years trying to master the craft and they just stopped. Like, it's kind of a phenomenal thing. Like the economic impact of this computerized printing machine like killed a craft um almost overnight like yeah it, it it really took a few salt warts and a long time of um a landscape with less and less hand-painted signs for people to kind of understand that there was a visual impact there was an aesthetic loss with that and there was also the death of a, of a craft um and i think i think sign painting was probably at its lowest in the like mid to late 90s before it started to kind of pick up again um and i think um certain businesses like you know i think we were talking about tattooing earlier like tattoo shops um were one of the the mainstays for traditional sign painters for a long time to kind of weather that weird lull um, when after the computer and the the vinyl lettering <laughs> came and just destroyed destroyed the the industry and destroyed the craft um, because I think tattooers really resonated with traditional sign painting and even dabbled in it a lot because. Um, some of the techniques are really similar and uh, um, visually um, the aesthetic is pretty similar. Um, and I was getting tattooed as like a younger person 
and I was talking to my friend who was tattooing me and he was like, yeah, this old guy told me the other day that the three least respected arts are graffiti, tattooing, and sign painting. And I was like, what? Like, it really planted the seed for me. And this was probably 2002, 2003, or something like that. And I was like, that's a pretty bold statement and interesting. And I think at the time was really true. And I think that the perception of all three of those things in the past 20 years has really shifted. Um, and I think people have a lot more respect in general for all three of those art forms. Um, and it, yeah, I'm kind of riding that wave <laughs> career-wise. What you just said stands out to me because like graffiti, like. I mean, I remember coming up, like growing up as, as a little kid and only hearing about graffiti in like a negative way. Mm -hmm. Now, I grew up in Calgary, Alberta, so it's not like I grew up somewhere where there was like graffiti was everywhere and you would have seen like kind of like poor examples of it and then like amazing examples of it. I, sure. I can't imagine. I, like, from growing up in Calgary, I don't know if I saw good or bad. It's just right. like, but I only heard about it in a negative oh, way. Totally. Right? Yeah. And then tattooing, again, when I was growing up, it was like bad people have tattoos. Yep. It's terrible. And then hand-painted signs. It's like I grew up in the time of like neon signs or lit, lit yeah. signs. I don't really recall having like a lot of connection to like hand-painted signs when I was young. However, now as an adult or not even as an adult, but in this time in our, in, in this place in time, it's like graffiti writing. Like I think everyone, even people who are like maybe a little bit more... Um, old school and they're thinking or a little bit more rulesy like they can look at graffiti and be like damn that's like pretty amazing yeah. that's super even weird. my father-in-law has favorite graffiti artists and he's like total just like boomer like yeah. <laughs> pretty straight and narrow guy and he's like i really like that gats piece over there and i'm like cool richard that's awesome the fact that someone can look like you can look at something and be like objectively that's super cool but also because the history of it is so much more um, accessible now mm -hmm. and you can be like oh like graffiti culture is super interesting and really cool and there were like people who were doing things that literally changed the landscape of the city right. in a way that made it like interesting and magical so that's cool right yeah. and now i think someone growing up like uh, kids like our kids would grow up th probably having a favorable impression of graffiti where it was like for us it was like a we were taught negative things about it totally. tattooing it's like everyone has tattoos now like it's really celebrated it's really respected but again the the culture and history of it is really accessible now mm -hmm. sign painting so um when ross and shout out to ross you're the best uh first suggested you as a guest i was like that is such a cool idea like hand-painted signs like what an interesting craft, what an interesting art. And I can definitely say if I see a hand-painted sign, I'm like, oh, I take a moment. I just look at it. I'm interested in it. But the history, I've never like, it seems like you'd, you'd have to like be interested in knowing about the history to hear about the history. Where about graffiti or tattoo culture, it's kind of like accessible and everywhere. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think I, you know, the history of it was part of what was intriguing to me. Um, like I... I studied history in college and you know didn't do art in college but i did paint graffiti for years um and it all really felt like it came together to where i am today and there are so many really famous and good graffiti writers that make their living painting signs really yeah and just like 
many pop artists of the like 50s and 60s were commercial artists by trade. Um, you know, it's it it goes hand in hand in a lot of ways. So, uh, and another thing you talked about that I, I want to hit on because it's just like it just lit up a bunch of stuff for me is the idea of changing the aesthetic of the space that you live in. Yeah. And that shift of hand painted signs going away to kind of these computerized things, which I agree with you. It's not like a good or a bad thing. It's just, mm -hmm. it, it changes the way a, a space looks. But what really got me thinking was like, you know, if you think of like a city, you think of architecture, right? And um, Monica and I are, are both, uh, we like kind of mid-century modern houses, you know, so we're mm -hmm. like big fans of Palm Springs. Yeah. So you go and there's that kind of a sense of place around it. I hadn't really thought of the role that sign painting would play in that, but it's like graffiti plays into that. Sign painting uh, plays into that. Architecture plays into that. Like, you know, like how gardens are done plays into it. Like yeah. where, where we live, uh, the area we live in Vancouver has a lot of like really big lush gardens. It's like known for that. Um, a space isn't, I guess like in my thinking, cause I'm not like an artistic person, a space is just kind of like exists. You know, like I don't really think a lot about right. what goes into making it exist, Yeah. but sign painting would be a part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And even if you don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about it, I guarantee that you notice it if it's, if something is different or something is weird. So yeah. Well, I, I think about it like in the most subliminal way, like I like this or I don't right. like this, but I yeah. don't think of the hours and the intention behind it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it definitely, it definitely all matters. And um, yeah, I think that w one of the coolest things about my job is that I kind of get that little um, rush that I would get when I was painting graffiti, when I would be like cruising around town and seeing all of these things that I painted. Um, I can do that now, but you know, I'm getting paid for it and I'm increasing the property value instead of <laughs> decreasing the property value. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally, totally. Well, and you're also like, if we think of something like Timeless, which is like for anyone listening, uh, Timeless is uh, coffee shops in the Bay Area that are just like ran by a wonderful person. It's a great, really, really great series of coffee shops. and. It's also about like helping the visual representation of someone who's worked so hard at something that's so cool and special to so many people, but being able to represent that in the sign. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I really like, I love being able to be more of a community member by literally having my hand on all of these businesses of people that I really respect. Um, I think that, yeah, one of, another one of my favorite things about what I do. I love uh, that. Yeah. So, in, in the most general terms, whatever you feel is appropriate, kind of start to finish, like someone brings you in for a job and you can give an example of whatever kind of job you want. Yeah. What's the process, start to finish? Yeah, usually someone will, you know, approach me, say they want to start a small business, like a barber shop or something like that. Um, uh, sometimes they come prepared with a logo. Other times I will draft something, a real quick five, 10 minute thumbnail sketch, like looks like something on the back of a napkin um, and be like, hey, do you want something laid out like this? Maybe I'll show them some examples of styles. I do a lot of gold leaf lettering. Um, and so I always try to be like, hey, this would be a really cool option for gold leaf if you have the budget for it. Um, and so I'll show different examples of things from either my portfolio or I'll show examples from old sign painting books. Be like, hey, 
this would be really cool because inside I'm like, oh, I really want to paint something like this. Let's make this like your thing. Um, and then they'll either be like, yay or nay. And when they, when we all kind of decide what is a good thing for their business, um, I will then usually draft a scale pattern. Um, so like I'll literally take like a four foot tall roll of paper, roll it out on my easel. And sometimes I'll use my projector and transparencies like, you know, some of us remember from school um, and project that straight onto my uh, onto my paper. I do that a lot for logos or real specific illustrations and stuff that needs to be really exact. Um, draft it out um, at scale. I'll um, perforate my lines with um, a, what's called an electric pounce because um, I have a steel easel. And I do this little, I have a pencil that is connected to my easel that sends a little shock through it and burns a little hole in the paper. So when you pull it away, um, you can see that it's perforated and I can put um, chalk or charcoal. And that's how I put up my design. And then when I'm on site, or even if I'm working on something for in, that's inside the shop, um, I have my blank board. I'll put that directly, uh, that paper pattern directly onto the board or the window or the wall, whatever it may be. I'll use chalk or charcoal depending on the background color. And then I have all of my outline of the piece that I'm gonna paint. So it's pretty intentioned. There's certain projects where I'll just go up to a window and I'll just draft something out um, with a pencil. Um, if it's a trusted client, like I can do that. Um, or if they specifically are asking for that, um, I can do that. But most of the time I try to give people, you know, a lot of examples or um, like a, a good um, thumbnail um, and as well as like final approval on the pattern just to make sure that, you know, there's no ambiguity in what people want. Um, and then from there, I, I paint. So, yeah. Now, you'd say most of your clients like likely come to you, like 90% come mm -hmm. to you from like word of mouth or literally have observing you. Yeah. Um, I'd imagine there must be some element of people coming to you thinking they want something and you having to kind of like educate might sound like, I, I don't mean to be dismissive of them, but like teach them about the industry, yeah. what you do. And then sometimes that might even lead to you not doing work for them. Is that yeah, for sure. Yeah, that does happen. Um, and I, I think most of the time we find like a good middle ground. Um, there's rarely jobs where I'm like, I'm just going to have to pass on this. You should get like this, this or this to do that. Um, sometimes if it's really, really small and delicate and like a lot of words, um, I'd be like, look, I could do this, but it's going to be cost prohibitive. You should get somebody to, um, you know, like, screen it or do a mask or something like that like it would save you thousands of dollars and you might like the the effect better so there's there has been occasion for that and most of the time i feel pretty good about that um because um i don't want to you know paint a bunch of computer generated fonts for hours and hours like that's not really what i do like it is what i do but it's also not what I do, if that makes sense. Like, I would rather take that time and paint like a beautiful design, uh, 
went and do like a, a gold leaf window with like some pictorial flowers or something like that for somebody than do like hours of Helvetica that just came straight from the computer and just because just to do it by hand just because like it doesn't always translate and we live in a world where you know computers do exist and there are other ways of of doing it and so like not every sign needs to be a hand-painted sign yeah that goes back a little bit to what you said earlier it's not like a, it's not like a good or a bad it's yeah. just this is like a valid form of of reaching out to people for that sure. has its place but there's also places for like great get your vinyl sign printed there's there's not a bad thing about right. it um let's talk about pay though yeah uh how have you learned how to charge your worth um that's hard it, it really has been a hard fought thing um i think things that were fortunate um in my um education um and my uh you know uh, business uh you know learning curve um i have tried to do other businesses before in the past um for different things completely unrelated um and i also did an apprenticeship with a function like a working sign painter for two years and talked in depth and saw what worked and didn't work I also worked part-time after that for a sign shop here in the city and they still are to this day very transparent about pricing and um, I learned how to bid jobs accurately while being an apprentice and while later working at the sign shop um, understanding the cost of materials and the time and that's how you bid a job is you estimate how much time it's going to take you and what the material costs are going to be. And we as a collective unit of sign painters in the Bay Area specifically, but I think probably pretty generally um, tend to get along with each other and communicate. Um, like I, I don't know of any sign painters except for maybe a couple of older folks that I just haven't met yet. Um, that still actively work um, as sign painters in the Bay Area um, will talk about our pricing with each other so that we can kind of be close. We all have different, we offer different things. We offer different kind of styles, if you will. We offer, we have different overheads. So the pricing isn't going to be 100% the same, but um, I think that it's definitely a more of a collaborative group of folks compared to a competitive set of sign painters that are really trying to kind of like outbid one another yeah so when you started like out on your own so mm -hmm. you're no longer working for anyone else yeah were you already comfortable with like being like this is my price and what it is or did you have to kind of like learn to i hadn't learned because you know honestly in a perfect world, I would probably do a lot of it for free. Like if yeah, I, yeah. yeah, I'd be like, oh, you want me to do that? That's awesome. I would love to do that. Great. And so asking for money was always something that was really hard for me. And um, it took me a long time to get to the point where um, I now am just very communicative about money and really upfront and almost sound harsh. Be like, 
okay, cool. Like before we go any further, I take a $200 non-refundable deposit and that will be, you know, attributed to the final product if we move forward. If not, sorry, like this is, this is the deal. Um, and I'll give you an exact quote of what this is going to cost. And if the scope of the work changes, the cost will also change. And, you know, getting the money stuff out of the way makes it easier. Um, it makes everybody more comfortable. There's no like anxiety about it. There's no unexpected what ifs and that kind of stuff. And it took me that part, you know, honestly, if I'm being honest, is I'm still working on that. Um, and that's probably going to be a forever process for me because every once in a while I'll be like excited about a project and just jump in and be like, oh, I'm not even going to worry about taking a deposit. And then that's the one that I'll get like burnt on. I'll put like hours into it and they'll be like, oh, we're going to change this or we're just going to hold off on this for a little bit. And you're just like, oh, <laughs> I thought I learned this lesson, but no. So, yeah, it's it's a process. <laughs> Why do you think it's tough for you, though, the money, the money side? Um, I find it uncomfortable, for one, like I always have. Um, I... You know, I really don't know. I don't know if there's like a weird like punk ethos part of it where I'm like, oh, money, evil. Like, I don't want to be you know, like corporate greedy overlord guy. <laughs> but it's like, this is what I do. Like, I'm spending money to like do this too. Like, it's not like, yeah. So I have to kind of rein that in, I guess. And I can't just do stuff for free all the time. And sometimes I do, but it'll be like, you know, I'll do stuff for like a nonprofit or something and be like, okay, I'll donate my, my time for this. Like, that's great, but I can't donate my time to your business. I'm sorry. <laughs> the, the reason I'm asking so much about this is like one of the things that people ask me about the most around, around the podcast or comment on the most is when I have people talk about their pricing and how they came up with it. Yeah. Because it's like the, the worst. Yeah. Like if you love what you do yeah. and you like helping people, like you genuinely like, and it could be painting signs or it could be doing coaching or whatever it is you do. Yeah. Like um, therapists, like my background is therapy. Like people, therapists going on their own. That's like, they almost want to give it away, right. right? It's so hard to charge. If you like what you do, you care, you like, you kind of a people person. Almost to a person that talks to me about the podcast, they almost always like, oh my God, that time that person talked about pricing and how they came up with it. It's like exactly what I needed to hear. Yeah. It sucks though. Like, yeah. It's, it's, it's a really hard thing. And yeah, I, I'm, and every time I'm like, oh, maybe I, I, is it time to raise my hourly rate a little bit? Oh, I don't know. And like for some clients I do, some clients I don't. And like, oh man, I can't keep painting signs for this person at this price. Like it's just, you know, like that's what I charged seven years ago. Like it, things have changed. Wood has doubled in price. I can't, <laughs> I can't paint a sign for you for the same price. I'm sorry. <laughs> Can I share something about my business? Yeah, please. Uh, the first time, not the first time we did like kind of a bigger company retreat where like the first couple times we did company retreats, they were just like me and like, two other, three other people. But the first time we did one where it was like, oh, like, wow, the company's grown. They, my team had like almost like a mutiny with me where they're like, we have to charge more money. Yeah. And I was like, no, I can't, I don't, I don't want to. And they were like, no. And they forced me to like, not double, but like significantly raise the prices. Yeah. And I had like, it felt like, like an emotional hangover for the rest of the time. I was like, 
oh my God, like, what am I doing? Like, this is so bad. And then I started getting into like weird thinking, like the clients are gonna like go away. I'm gonna let everyone down. And like clients didn't even blink. Right, yeah. Didn't even think. But then throughout the years, every time we get to a place where it's like, as you said, wood doubles, right? Well, it's like all of the things for all of the things are going up. Some of them like wood doubles, but things can go up marginally Mm -hmm. or we try and be an ethical employer. So like the way not the way that we do things around healthcare or benefits or anything like that, those all go up. So when we have to raise prices, it does not get easier. And like I get, we just raised prices this year just by a teeny bit. Had a freaking heart heart attack about it, man. Yeah, every time, like I have so much um, anxiety around my emails, just like in general, like it turns into this like just terrible thing where like I hear it like ding and I'm like, oh, like I need to do these things and be responsive to like do my job. And a lot of it has to do with because I need to do bids. I'm like, oh man, I have like four jobs to bid right now. Like I, I just can't face it. I have to like wake up in the morning and do it when I'm like energized. Um, and like, it, it, it's just probably the hardest thing for me is being responsive with my emails when it comes to doing a bid, especially if it's a job that like I really want or like just like, I, you know, I don't want to disappoint people. I don't want to like, you know, be rejected outright. I don't want to seem weird. And it's just, ugh, yeah. Um, so I know this is a tough ask because I'm going to ask you to do something kind of across industries. But yeah. if you had just any kind of advice that you could offer to people who are out on their own. So specifically people who are starting their own thing, they're trying to be independent or start a small little company. Yeah. Specifically around pricing and kind of like really like honoring yourself with your pricing, what would that advice be? Um, I think being realistic is important and being consistent. Um, so consistency would be like, like just for using what I do as an example, like I said, the cost of materials, and then your hourly rate, um, like what your time costs. Also understanding with the way that I work, um, I'm not like charging nine to five hourly rate. Like um, it's, you know, per project, how much time am I gonna be spending on this? And trying to actually be realistic about that. Um, And that way you can kind of like be what the real value of your product is. Um, and I think that's the only way to be sustainable, um, is like trying to accurately assess the value of whatever your product being your time or your knowledge. And also taking into consideration, you're not charging for just like me specifically, my hourly rate charge is, um, you know, incorporating the years of practice and knowledge that I have about this stuff, um, the specific brushes that I have, um, stuff that I don't necessarily consider like the supply cost. Like I need to like incorporate all of that. Um, and that's, you know, like my hourly rate is not the lowest of the people in the Bay Area and I have to be okay with that. I've been maybe doing it longer and you know, that's important to, to honor that. I don't want to be working so hard so much and barely scraping by um, because I'm not honoring that. 
what like everything you just said there I, I feel is like really important for anyone who's kind of out on their own or starting a small business to hear and especially that last piece that honoring your expertise the time that you've you've spent and you know most people understandably are uncomfortable being like i'm an expert right you know like very few people when they say that are comfortable with saying that and I don't, I don't, I'm not asking people to like run out the door and start yelling that they're an expert. But when you're positioning yourself in like, if you're offering something to someone, that should come through in how you're pricing yourself. And, you know, if you're thinking about pitching a job or like doing any kind of work, leading, like leading with the understanding that you're offering something that's really valuable based on a lot of hours and sweat and thought and creativity into putting something that is special that should be reflected in your pricing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and again, like you, you can honor your expertise and still understand that you have a lot to learn. Like I am learning stuff every day and enjoy learning stuff every day. And you know, we'll talk to sign painters that have been around longer or people that do a lot of real fine gold leaf work that know so much more about techniques and methods and materials and have other cool ideas about how to do stuff and design stuff that I just haven't absorbed yet or been able to absorb fully or had the time to do a deep dive in. Um, but like you can still honor the time that you have spent and just know that there's always more to learn. So yeah, you can be an expert in your field and still have, you know, a whole mountain of knowledge to gain. So that you may never gain. And you may never gain, yeah, yeah. for sure. I, I love that. I totally, you totally hit on it. I completely agree. Um, you cool if we shift into you now? Sure. Okay, yeah. so how did you get into this industry, man? Like, what's your story? Yeah, um, so yeah, what what is my story? I think, I, I mean, I mentioned earlier that the seed was kind of planted um, when I was talking to my friend who was tattooing me, and I was like, yeah, there's still people who are traditional sign painters, like, that's awesome. Like, I love the aesthetic. I love, like, everything about it just really, like, energized me um, even then. And, like, it just kind of was, like, in the back of my, my head for a really long time. Um, I studied weird stuff in college. Um, I was a history major. Um, but I really focused on 20th century American cultural history and spent a lot of time studying um, like hobo culture, hobo graffiti, um, and like folk art in general and folk music. And like all of these people were sign painters. Woody Guthrie was a sign painter. Um, Muhammad Ali's dad was a sign painter. Like I just like, like it just like kind of kept coming to me and was just building and I was like oh I, I, I bought some brushes bought some paint and like played around with it and I was like oh this is really hard like I don't I don't get it like would put it down for a while um and do other stuff um you know like was really focused on just like racing bikes for a long time or like playing in bands for a long time um and then, uh, you know, I was working um, for FSAP, which is the business end of PETA. Um, and I was, I was hating it. It was just like spreadsheets 
um, like sitting in front of a computer. Um, it was cool working for an organization that I felt like, you know, was doing good work and a necessary organization. Um, and I was like, you know what, like working in nonprofit is not my future. It, this is not my career. Um, and I had put out feelers uh, with some friends that I knew that were closer friends with um, Derek, who uh, ran Golden West Sign Arts in Berkeley, who is like actually, you know, my age. And um, I knew kind of tangentially through like earlier graffiti stuff. Um, and I was just like kept like going in and like bugging him, being like, hey, can, can I like do an apprenticeship? And at first he was like, no, like I got other, another guy who's coming in sometime. And I was like, oh. And so I like, you know, kept kind of bugging him. And then finally he was like, yeah, you can come in, you know, like I'll, I'll like show you some, some strokes and alphabets and that kind of stuff. And that was it. Like I would go in once a week, like religiously to just kind of prove to myself and prove to him that I was serious about it. I quit my job at PETA and was um, helping my wife who was doing um, like a bookkeeping company at the time um, and was just kind of like poorly helping her to you know, earn some income during that time, but um, was just really focused on like, this is what I want to do. And so I'm going to do it and just like did the deep dive. And he's like, you've been coming in a lot. You're doing better. Like, can you help me on this job? I'll pay you. Um, and I'm like, yes. I'm earning as a side painter. Let's do it. And so that was kind of my entry. And then um, I had also reached out during that time early on to the sign shop here in San Francisco called New Bohemia. Um, and uh, there was this time period where Derek moved and closed his shop. And um, I was like, huh, what should I do now? So I had checked back in with New Bohemia and they're like, oh, we could totally use you. Um, and I was like, awesome. But at the same time, Derek started referring me to people uh, that were reaching out to him to do signs locally. And so I kind of like, I didn't have to do a hard start ever. Like I could, I did this like slow slide from, cause I was working at New Bohemia in the city part-time and then doing uh, my own stuff, mostly referred to um, by Derek, um, and was able to kind of like build my business and also with, you know, people that I knew that were starting businesses that knew that that's what I was doing. Um, you know, like, yeah, like just weird Bay Area stuff. Like the very first wall sign that I painted was um, for... Uh, um, a tattoo shop for uh, Sammy Town, who is the singer of Fang, who is terrifying, kind of like if you know his backstory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I'll paint a sign for you. Like, I really hope I don't mess this one up. But like, just like weird stuff like that started coming up. Um, you know, like I painted a lot of signs for. Um, Al, who has Crimson, and she's married to Ben Sizemore from Econochrist. Like, just there's everything just seems to be kind of interconnected like that. 
for me for for my business life so let's take a step back yeah um so what did you think you were going to do as a career i my mom actually told me as an adult i don't remember having this conversation but she said that i said that i wanted to be a hobo and I used to like go around with like a rucksack. Like when you were a little kid. Yeah, yeah. and want to like hop trains and stuff. And it's like, cool, I kind of did that. Like, and I'm kind of doing that still. Right. <laughs> but like when it came to adulthood, man, like I like I have a distinct memory of being in high school and um I could not see myself past the age of 18. Not because I was like you know suicidal or like there was just a barrier there like i i couldn't fathom what life was going to be like and i didn't knew that i you know wanted to do something that i found valuable and that would keep my attention and i tried a lot of things um you know i i spent a lot of time just trying to be in a band and on tour all the time um i Spent a lot of time as a bike messenger, which also dovetailed really nicely with being in a band all the time because you could hop in and out of being a bike messenger really easily. Like you could always get a job doing that when you were in town. Um, you know, worked at bike shops. I enjoyed being a bike mechanic. Um, I thought that that was great. Um, I did my own bike messenger company for a while. Um, that was kind of like the first business I ever tried to do. Um, and, you know, uh, I tried to utilize like my collegiate part of me by doing the stuff for um, FSAP. Uh, and that was the worst out of all of it. Like there's some people that love it and can do it and that's just their thing. And that was just like every day, it was just like a disingenuous me like showing up. Like, I loved, like, all the stuff and, like, the vegan potlucks that were happening. But, like, the actual work part of it, like, it was just not me. The, um, the reason I'm asking is, like, I think, like, you know, there's, there's people who just know what they're going to do. Yeah. And just totally know what they're going to do. Yeah. And then there's a ton of people who are, like, I, I, I think you positioned it beautifully. It's not like people are, like, suicidal or depressed or, or anything, but it's just, like, I don't know what adult me is like I have no idea what me past 18 is yeah. or me past 21 or 25 and that idea of getting stuck yeah. um, I've become a little fascinated with that it's like coming from punk and hardcore it's like you kind of meet these like in just unbelievably talented like basically genius people mm -hmm. who kind of get stuck yeah and it doesn't mean they get stuck in punk or stuck in this or stuck in that they just get stuck in life and yeah. it's like there's so many people that, like, sadly, some of them aren't uh, with us anymore, and then some of them kind of drifted away, and you know, different kind of stories. But just people were like, damn, like, you don't need to do something like big career to be happy. It's not that, but it's like, I don't think you're happy doing this. I think you're stuck. Right. And that idea of getting stuck, but people who are like willing to get unstuck were like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be the disingenuous me. I'm not going to like just park myself at some job that I hate, but I need to make money nor am I going to like be a little kid for the rest of my life. I've got to be doing something that matters to me. Yeah. And that taking a leap of faith and betting on yourself is like, I love so much of this, uh, so much of the story, but that part where you're like, Oh no, I actually just liked this thing. Yeah. And kind of in a, as an adult, I quit my paying job to go just bet on myself. 
Yeah. That's a cool part of the story. It was really scary. I wouldn't have been able to do it if I didn't have a supportive partner. Um, you know, we have we had a small kid at that time too. And like, you know, shout out to my wife for being that what I was doing was not like gonna be what I needed to be doing. Like she grew up in a house with, you know, a dad who like went to work every day, hated his job and was miserable. And like, she's like, that's, we're not going to have this life. I don't want that to be you. And allowed me, gave me permission to take that leap. And it was big and scary at the time, for sure. I tried to set up like some scaffolds for it, but like, you know, you, you got to take the plunge and I did, and it was hard. And I faced a lot of rejection and frustration and like, uncertainty and like it was downright depressing um but um i'm so you know glad that i did but again i couldn't have done it without supportive people in my life and i think most of us couldn't do it without without those people and it's like it's it's a really cool story the reason i wanted to back you up to that because you're like oh and i kind of like slid into this career where it's like no way man (laughs) there was a lot of stuff involved for sure yeah yeah it was a it was a solid two years before um i started to have like any semblance of like a business um for sure so it makes me think of RJ when he started Timeless. Yeah. And kind of like, if you talk to him about it, he can just make it like, oh yeah, I worked at like Cyclops for a while right. and then I started this thing. It's like, dude, yeah. like you bet on yourself. You took a huge leap. You did a lot of stuff. You were in the grind. Yeah. Like you really, you really took a leap and built something super special. And I think people need to hear those stories a bit more. Like what you just said when you're like, actually, yeah, like this was scary. Yeah. Betting on yourself is terrifying, terrifying. Um, and it doesn't always work out. And it comes with the privilege of having people who can support you and being in a certain position in life where you can take those leaps. Yeah. But if you are lucky enough to be in those spaces, doing that and betting it all just to, to try and be happy and do something fulfilling, there's nothing better than that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think there is another component to it with, um, for me, being in like a traditional job, um, is just unsustainable. Like, I just couldn't do it. Like, you know, um, I don't know if it's like, I contribute it to like having ADD or something like that. Like, I just, I think that there's some people um, who just can't do it. And I think I realized that that was me and I needed to figure my shit out. Um, I needed to see what I could do to survive. and that's what it was going to take. I just, it's so, I think it's super important for people to hear that because like, you know, I know a lot of people come from so many different circumstances and, and not everybody's in the position to be able to do what, what you've done, what I've been able to do, what other people can do to, to go out and kind of like do that bet on yourself. But I gotta, I gotta encourage people here that work is there's so many different ideas of work and work work can be and you don't have to get stuck in something you hate in many cases there are options and for those times there aren't options there that's also a reality too but like if you are lucky enough to have options explore those options there's like a wild world of work out there that's like working and being productive is such an important part of the human experience but like 
doing your best to not get stuck and live in misery. Like there's, I, I think there's almost nothing more important than trying to get out of being stuck. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally, totally agree. Yeah, and it was obviously a big turning point in my life to, to take that leap and, uh, you know, on something that seemed so kind of wild and bizarre to anybody, if you're like gonna tell them what you're gonna be doing, like, you're like, oh, cool, that's like a cool hobby. Like, totally. Yeah. And I'm like, no, it's an industry. Like, this is happening. Like, I'm in it. I'm doing it. This is what I'm going to do. Well, like, when, again, when Ross brought you up for the podcast, he brought up two people. He was like, yeah. oh, here's this, like, guy that I know who works at Deloitte. And he gave me his whole background. I was like, wow, that sounds like someone I want to talk to. And he's yeah. like, and let me tell you about Pat. Like, I think you know Pat. And he gave me your whole background. And I was like, these are such totally wild, different things, but both are super cool stories. And, yeah. like, that idea was like sounds like a cool hobby. It's like no, this is like this really time honored, really incredible way of of expressing yourself, helping people connect with their clients, but also changing a city and changing a landscape. Yeah, um, I I find it super fascinating. Um, but let's talk about you personally. Yeah. So one of the things that I know uh, is a very important part of your story is your family mm -hmm. and the makeup of your family. So what do you want to share about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, like I, you know, uh, entered parenthood, um, by the time I was probably old enough to, but still felt too young and, uh, was like, okay, I've now I've entered this phase in my life. Cool. I find myself enjoying being a parent. Um, like this is a cool new component to my identity. Um, and then, immediately almost after um, I ended up you know divorcing my wife at the time and um, uh, a lot of moving around in turmoil and ended up getting remarried and the talk of you know growing our family and having you know uh, uh, an addition to our family was brought up and we were like well why don't we explore fostering like let's just look at it um, because we're already parenting um, you know and uh, let's let's see if um, if we can channel that like desire to maybe grow our family by helping out you know kids that might be in need and let's just like learn about it and so we did and we went to um, what was like essentially like a county sponsored foster parent recruiting thing and they tell you all of these awful statistics and like you basically go away like crying like signing up for this thing like there's like I don't remember what the specific um, statistics were but they were astronomical between the disparity of foster um, uh, houses available versus the need was like like 40 to 1 or something just in Alameda County where Oakland is um, and um, you know the overwhelming majority of families who find themselves entangled in uh, social services are you know low-income families of color and we're like okay this might be another cool way to do like some anti-racist action um, and uh, help try to keep families together by keeping um, children of color in Oakland um, because 
if there's not an available house, these kids get shipped to like the Central Valley, like, you know, Stockton, Bakersfield even. And one of the main components that's required for families to regain custody of their kids is consistent visitation. And these kids are getting shipped to Bakersfield and foster families are not obligated to facilitate, you know, uh, visitation. It's the onus is on the biological parent. And so, as you can imagine, someone who's struggling to the point where their kids are getting entangled in, you know, um, the foster care system and social services um, often do not have the wherewithal or the means to go to Bakersfield to make these visits. And that was like a big motivator for us to do this, right? Um, so we sign up, we do all the real invasive home study stuff. Like they like really look at you under a magnifying glass and they're like, to the point, it's like really antiquated. They're like, oh, it says here that you're in therapy. And we had to be like, oh, it wasn't really therapy. It was like a, a, a visit with our like pastor before we got married to make sure that we were compatible. And they're like, okay. But like if we would have said that like, you know, we routinely go to therapy, they would have been like, hmm, maybe, maybe you're not a suitable foster parent. Like, like stuff that just feels like mind-bogglingly like outdated and bizarre. Like this was 2016, you know, and, you know, we were kind of um, primed by some uh, friends of ours who had started the foster process before and like warned us about that kind of stuff. Um, but like the, that whole thing was really like just an aside and just like an interesting thing. Um, but like, you know, um, they you have to take all of these like classes and trainings and um, they really hammer it in that like, OK, we love that you're doing this, but this is not um, a good pathway to adoption. Like it does happen. But like if you're in it to adopt, like it's not going to happen. And we're like, cool, we're not in it to adopt. Like, we just want to, like, you know, open our house up to a, a baby for a week or a weekend or something like that until they can, like, get things sorted out, you know, um, which was kind of what we thought we were going to be doing. But, um, you know, our reality turned out to be totally different. Um, we got our first placement and we were like, oh, like, okay, like, this is happening. We're going to go down to this like secret pickup location and take home this like small frightened child who was uh, a nine month girl and um, she became our adopted daughter three years later. Um, we, we tried for about three years to help facilitate reunification um, and it was really hard um, and it, didn't pan out. Um, could you could you explain reunification? Yeah, reunification with um, our daughter's bio family. Mm -hmm. um, so I personally know um, you know her father pretty well, her bio father, um, and know have met her bio mother because of various attempts at reunification. Um, you know, mostly in a um, controlled, supervised environment through social services. Um, but um, yeah, uh, you know, for all of the common reasons, like, um, you know, uh, 
them being unhoused, severe mental illness and addiction, um, incarceration, um, all of those are components to, um, you know, my, my, my daughter's situation with her bio family. Um, and um, after a certain point, um, you know, we are the family that she knows. Um, and uh, it turned into uh, a pre-adoption situation. And then we officially adopted her. And we we're like, wow, that was a wild ride. We're never doing that again. Um, <laughs> like we, you know, didn't renew our foster license. We're like, we, like that was taxing. We wouldn't change it for the world, but you know, we, we can't do that. Um, and then last year on December 29th, we get a call from social services saying, hey, um, we have a little baby in the NICU that is your daughter's half-brother and he needs a home. And we're like, Jesus Christ, like, that's, what do you do with that kind of call? Um, we uh, only live four blocks or 10 blocks technically away from the hospital at the time. And so we called back and we were like, okay, we don't really know what we're doing, but we really feel like we should at least come visit this guy. Um, as, as kind of a side note, one thing that was really hard for me um, that happened during the adoption process of our daughter um, was you get to read um, all the background, you get to read police reports, you get as much information in history. Um, and I discovered that she spent like weeks alone um, in, uh, in, in the NICU. And that was obviously really hard for me to think about. Um, like, I don't know why it's so triggering for me, but even still now, like I can't even talk about it. Um, and so I was like, okay, the least I can do is not let this happen to this little guy. And so we're like, oh shit, let's go to the fucking NICU and go visit this guy. We can't commit to taking him. We have, at that time, a two-bedroom apartment, <laughs> four-story walk-up with two kids and a dog. And like, we really cannot take another um, placement right now. But, um, you know, he, we heard his story from the nurses, which was that, you know, he was essentially born in an encampment, extremely premature, on the side of a freeway. Um, witnesses saw a woman holding a bloody bundle and called 911. Um, he was found dead on arrival, was resuscitated for over an hour, life flighted, and miraculously, you know, is here and doing the thing. And um, it, you know, it just, as much as our pragmatic minds were like, we can't do this, like, we, we did it. And <laughs> he came home to us, like, what, um, less, like about a week and a half later, he was released as soon as he weighed over four pounds because he was tiny, like unknown amount of prematurity because there was no record of prenatal care or anything like that. Um, they had just figured out after he was, had been in the hospital for about three weeks what his, uh, you know, parentage was, and they made the connection to her daughter. And so, um, yeah, he ended up 
coming home to us and that's our crazy family story and um not the most intentional way of building a family honestly um but i think you know we were um naive in a lot of ways about what we were getting ourselves into and um yeah it was you know hard um, but valuable um hard hard lessons and has helped us kind of continue to reflect um what our values are and what our identities are um and uh yeah it's uh it's so fraught and complicated um and um I, I don't, you know, I don't wish that I had just like, you know, a, a traditional nuclear family where everyone is biologically related or anything, but um, it's, there's, we, we have to deal with things like, you know, trauma and um, uh, health concerns that, you know, maybe other families don't have to deal with in the same way. And um, yeah. Yeah, that's that's the the story of my my current family. <laughs> the, and thank you for sharing that. And like, dude, thanks for just being like a a, a person about it, um, like being real about it. Uh, the reason I'm bringing it up for anyone who's wondering, like, because you know I don't always go into people's family yeah. history, but in your pre-interview with Monica, it had been something that you had brought up, and you were um, really. Um, you know, uh, it really mattered to Monica that, that it brought up. And then when I was reading the notes, I was like, damn, like we should talk about this. Yeah. Because you hit a lot of angles and only to the level of comfort you want to talk about it. But um, you had talked about like the anti-racist action of it, which I just find so like, the fact that you're even putting yourself in that mindset, it just like moves me a lot of the idea of like, hey, we know that these these kids are vulnerable and they're they're coming from a vulnerable population, people who are in the system for who who interact with the system for whatever reason the parents are in a vulnerable position the kids are in a vulnerable position and the idea that that they will get split up entirely uh, unless someone local does that and that idea of like that involvement can be an expression of anti-racist action in the sense of like we're giving we're trying to create a condition where families can stay together um, and that people can be connected to their culture yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I'd love to. Absolutely. Uh, I think it needs to be addressed after opening the door earlier. Yeah. Like, uh, it's, uh, I, I think our attempt at um, doing some sort of positive anti-racist action almost backfired in, in a certain respect because, you know, we are now 
two white parents of, um, you know, two Latina, Latino children um, and have little to no connection to their, uh, their birth culture. And there's no way that we can make up for that. Um, it's just impossible. And I, it, it's a, it's a huge, um, you know, contradiction in, in how we're living. Uh, and it's hard to, it's hard to really, you know, fully reconcile, um, like circumstance had and, and, like understandably, um, and kind of made our family come together in the way that it has. Um, and at the same time, uh, it is, it is not, um, it is not ideal. Like it's, it's been a really hard thing for us to negotiate and it's required us to do a lot of deep dives and try to educate ourselves, um, and try to, um, make sure that despite that huge pitfall that we're not unwittingly to the best of our knowledge, creating other barriers. Um, there's a lot of resources, um, out there, um, that are from an, you know, an interracial adoptee perspective. So from a child's perspective, say of a person of color who was adopted into a white family, um, and all you have to do is talk to these people, you know, they have like social media platforms and you can like on Facebook be like, hey, this is the situation. How would you have felt in this situation? And I think that's kind of the least that we can do, um, honestly. Um, and, you know, I, I, and one thing that I was really like, I think I touched on a little bit when I was talking to Monica um, about this is that um, a lot of times when I start to tell our story, the knee-jerk reaction is to be like, oh, you guys are doing a wonderful thing. And it doesn't feel like it. Like, I don't agree that what we're doing is a wonderful thing. I think that what we're doing is necessary. I love my kids. I'm happy to take care of them. Um, but, uh, we had the agency to adopt and to foster. They did not. Um, and so there's a power dynamic and, um, I can't reconcile that with my values. Um, and I can't make that up to them. Um, but I can talk about it. I can be as transparent with them as possible and transparent with everybody who wants to talk to me about it as possible, about the reality of the situation. And um, that, you know, white savior or foster savior mentality, which often is the white savior mentality, is um, extremely detrimental to, you know, society in general, but um, on an individual basis to these kids who, had no agency in their life. Like you, you can't expect someone to. Um, oh, aren't you? You should be so grateful for this family taking you in, or something like that. Like you never asked for any of that. Like why should you be grateful? Like that's that's a that's a dynamic that I think um, 
is really harmful and almost hateful and um, is probably one of the, the biggest reasons why, you know, um, adopted children have like an astronomically higher um, suicide rate, substance abuse problems, um, behavioral issues, like they're thrust into a situation that they had no control over but are expected to be grateful. Yeah, you know, so what you're saying, like I, I think, and for any listener who's listening to this and being like, well, what's the alternative? Like, I think, I think this kind of, this specifically this topic, people might want to throw their hands up and get into binary thinking. Right. Well, it's better than people not having a, fam like a, a family. It's like getting into binary thinking of good versus bad is like, a toxic way of looking at something like this because like it's both yeah absolutely and um it reminds me of something that someone had said to me very early on in my uh, my work in the social services when someone had said hey man um, i i was saying something like early career stupid like you know what i mean yeah. like something like basically it was like um uh like addiction savior kind of thing like i like you know we're gonna say like whatever stupid thing i was saying right yeah and someone was like hey man if you look at yourself as the solution to anyone's problem you're not helping anyone right and i was like well, what do you mean they're like if you think that like if you think the complexity of life someone's life circumstances that led you to led them to come work with an addiction therapist then you're the person who then slam dunks it and, and so if you think that there's some kind of like magic bullet or magic wand that you have you're not you're not fit to do this work uh, basically they're like we are honored to work with people for a certain amount of time and if you think of the journey of uh, addiction or mental mental wellness or like life stability as like a journey of thousands of steps you should be honored to walk with someone for 300 steps or 200 steps or 500 steps or three steps your job isn't to fix people's problems. Your job is to help along the, along the path to them discovering and kind of firming up their own solutions yeah. uh, to, their, to their own life, including also if people just want to kind of just stay-ish in the same space, but they want their life to, to be a little um, less challenging or a little bit difficult or want someone to talk to. And it was a real, it was, it was great to hear that early career. It was like a real shot across the bow where I was like, oh shit, like yeah. why did I get into this industry? Like. Did I come in here because I want to like pat myself on the back and be like, I'm a good person. Right. And if I'm going to be like really honest, where I grew up and how I grew up, like I think at the core of it, there was a bit of, I want to, I want to feel I'm a good person. Mm -hmm. And then wherever that I can get that feeling is what I want to do. And it was so good to get that, that feedback early career. And it was not delivered in a nice way, but right. <laughs> it was delivered totally. in like a, yeah. a harsh way. It really made me think it's like, Hey man, if the result is that I feel like if I feel fulfilled for my job, that should be the result of what I'm doing. Not the like, oh, I was such a good person. Right. And I think it's important not think it is important to be able to have these conversations about like, really unpacking why we're doing something and how that could have like toxic results for someone or how a system is built to kind of like create power dynamics where people should be like so grateful for the people who are creating situations when in reality it's like hey man like if someone doesn't have the agency to make these decisions you really got to walk cautiously and be able to unpack those things so i i again for anyone who's listening who's like kind of trying to get into binary thinking i just want to encourage you to like break out of that and think like it's a bunch of stuff, but the one thing it's not as good or bad. It's like a mix of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's been um, for if, if anything, it's been 
a, an educational opportunity for us. And also, um, I think it's important because, you know, to draw some parallels to what you were saying, um, I think it's a, it's good to frame it um, as a form of, of harm reduction um, opposed to like rehabilitation. Um, if you need to have a kind of a framework, um, I think you can look at it maybe like that. Like, um, you know, there are situations where kids are in danger and I think it's important to provide a loving, safe home for kids who are in danger for sure. Um, but you can't expect to get fulfillment as a person um, just because your role is to provide safety for these kids. Like, that, it, it, you, it, it can't, you can't work like that and not have a negative effect on kids. Yeah, and, and I, I do believe that fulfillment and that kind of like, oh, like, you know, this, this feels right, that can be like a result of that. But mm -hmm. if that's like your leading thing, like right. I'm doing this to fulfill myself, you know, right. like that, that seems fraught with a, a, a hazardous payload that comes with it. Yeah, I think across the board, you're going to wind up with, um, you know, disappointment at best and real um, like life or death problems at worst so yeah yeah it's yeah it's been it's been i've learned a lot of valuable things i've learned a lot of things about myself i i think i tend to be a more extreme person like i think you you know maybe you can relate to that like being vegan being straight edge are kind of extreme stances on things and sometimes reactionary um, and mean different things to you as you get older or different phases in your life. Um, and I've spent most of my adult life, um, I think, um, I live the same values that I think I've had um, since I became a kind of aware teenager and trying to find my path. But um, I, I've become more um, I've become less black and white and I haven't become necessarily less extreme um, for, for better or for worse um, because I really do think that um, the extreme in life is needed um, to counterplay the extreme of the other side um, in order to find that balance but I think that I've discovered merit and the reality that the world we live in um, is actually all of these things at the same time. Um, and that's good, I think. I think it shows growth, um, but uh, it doesn't make your life easier. It makes it um, more confusing and harder emotionally, I think. Let's take a step just kind of looking, thinking about like the community because yeah. throughout our whole conversation, there's been still got a lot of talk about the community yeah, and like the landscape and the space you're in and the community that you're part of and going anywhere from like, I wanted it to be a cool, interesting place that looks cool and yeah. has like interesting all the way to like, hey, I'm thinking about the people in my community and their families and, and their kids and how people live, uh, live lives. What's important about like really being invested in your community to you? I think it's the 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 core tenant of um, the world that I want to see is uh, um, 
an investment in community. Um, I think that, like, I truly believe that 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 is what ultimately um, matters. Um, you know, I I I think that um, you know you could be a completely isolated person in your controlled environment, um, living far away from anyone else. Um, doing everything that you think you would exactly love to do, um, you would be an unfulfilled person and an un ultimately unsafe person. Um, I think as as humans, you know, uh, we we need a strong and vibrant community to to exist, like raising children, um, keeping each other safe, um, learning. Um, and I, you know, I, I really think I, I try to, to live um, with a focus on that being the world that I want to live in and try to push towards that world that I do want to see. So, yeah, I think, like, community is number one. And I think that, again, that's a really vague term, like, what is community? Is community your neighbors? Is community your subculture? Um, is community your work world and your coworkers, um, and I mean it's all of it, obviously. Um, and what you do in your community and what you can expect from your community can vary um, based on, you know, uh, what you have to offer, what your needs are, um, and. Um, you know, I I like the idea of um, people acting, you know, outside of like a centralized command structure or whatever, and um, uh, rallying together to do great things. Like that's like probably like pinnacle of inspiration for me, and so I try to like do that in little bits whenever I can. Um, so that's like, I think that that's like, if I had to really break it down to what, like the core of my definition of community would be, and that, that would be it, like, you know, collectively come together on whatever level you're talking about and do great things for everybody, mutually beneficial. Well, I'm going to ask you one more question, then we're going to go into the final Let's three. Let's do it. Okay. You, there's a lot of intention in how you do your business and the relationships you have with your clients and the relationships you have with other people who are in your industry. There's a lot of intention about how you conduct yourself um, in your space and the way you look at art. There's a lot of intention of how you have your family relationships um, and your friendships. Um, how do you manage your relationship with yourself with the same intention? How do you take care of yourself? It's you know, hard and ever-changing. Um, I think often the self will get neglected. Um, I think a lot of time, I feel like I have a lot of spinning plates um, and don't have the time or the luxury to do that check-in until, you know, you get to that almost burnout level. Um, and I'm, that's something that I really want to try to work on um, for sure. I think um, in a lot of ways, um, I'm pretty lucky in that I get a lot of like positive juice out of what I do. 
Um, and I think if I was doing any other job, my life and lifestyle probably wouldn't be sustainable. Um, I mean, you know, like the ages of my kids are very dispersed and their needs are very unique and different. And my personal email inbox is like almost unmanageable because of like, you know, different school events or different requirements or you got to pay the fee for this trip or like it, it's it, it can be it can be a lot. And so sometimes it's hard to, you know, take that time out to 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 do that check in. But I mean, I try to and I try to also um, bask in the moments when I realize that um, I'm feeling good um, and like check in and be like, why am I feeling good? Like, um, what about right now is, is, is good and sit and enjoy that moment. Um, kind of like my own weak attempt at mindfulness um, because uh, that's kind of the closest that I feel like I've ever come to, to those kind of moments and be like, oh, so I'm up here um, painting this wall sign in spring and I hear the birds chirping and everything's really quiet and still right now. And this is like, great. Like I can kind of like love my life. Or I'm sitting here watching my daughter do swim lessons and she's like, I've realized all of a sudden that she's um, like comfortable in the water. That's awesome. Like. I'm enjoying myself right now, like, and just try to make those moments last for as long as I can. Um, I don't know if that answered your question totally at did. all, but no, it did, man. It did. All right, you ready for the final three? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, they're going to get harder as we go along. The last one's going to be maybe the last one will be easy for you. Okay, but we'll we'll see. Okay. All right. So around work specifically, um, what's something that you learned about yourself throughout your process that you really had to work on? Like you're like, oh. I don't like that. I've got to work on it. But you've been able to successfully address it. So you're not still working on it. You've yeah. got it. You've, you've addressed it. Yeah, I think um, it's the main thing would be that, um, you know, I need to um, have systems and I need to have some semblance of organization. So like I need a to-do list and I need a calendar. Um, those are things that were really hard fought for me and like have become an absolute necessity. Like I can't, you can't just, it seems like you can't be an adult running a successful business without those kind of things. I can't keep it all in my head. I really want to keep it all in my head, but like I can't. And it took me a long time to feel comfortable doing that and making it, um, habitual and now it's habitual so you know like for our family we do like a sunday night weekly check-in where we go over what our schedule is because usually i'm the one that's going to be in different places and so we try to make sure that there's not going to be like gaps um, so that forces me to have my schedule for the week in advance so that i'm not messing everybody else's schedule up um, and that's been helpful and you know we don't we're not always perfect, but at least it's like goals. It's probably the most adult thing I think we do, actually. Um, but like, yeah, that's the number one thing for me with work is making sure that I have a to-do list 
and that I have a calendar and I have things calendared and scheduled and I can reconcile that with my inbox and make sure that, you know, all of that stuff balances and matches. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. What's one thing that you've known about yourself that you're still working on and you actually haven't? You're, you're working on it or maybe having to start working on it, but you know you need to. What's the one thing in your process you know you need to fix? Procrastination. Yeah. Like, I, if, it, if it feels hard, like, I'm going to procrastinate. And, like, part of what I do is a curse because I can be like, I'm going to go paint this right now because I get a lot of juice out of painting this right now. But what I should be doing is bidding those jobs and responding to those emails. But I can trick myself into being like, I'm working, I'm getting work done, I'm doing this. And it's true, <laughs> but it's not what I need to be doing. And that's the, that, yeah, I really need to like grow up in that realm. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm with you on that, man. Yeah. All right, last one uh, is, our conversation was cool for me because like we come from we both come from like punk and hardcore both straight edge vegan all those things and usually when i have someone on the show we end up talking about that a bit but we like just talked about it a little bit because sure. like you've got a history in music you play in a band and as we're doing kind of like our, our outro i, I want to make sure that you talk about that a bit yeah but um you know like usually i'll talk about it more and i i love that we didn't because we focused so much on other things but here's my hard question yeah very specific okay three greatest punk or hardcore records out of the Bay Area ever. <laughs> oh my God, thoroughly unprepared for this. Oh man, Redemption 87, their whole catalog for sure for me. Um, just like inspiring, influential. This newest band took their name out of a Redemption 87 song. Um, but um yeah the record the full length that they put out on um new age is like one of my all times definite bay area um and i gotta hit some weird deeper cuts somewhere um man uh i would probably have to put um like a conochrist in there um like, especially because of just, like, their whole aesthetic, number one, I really love. Um, I love Ben Sizemore. He does awesome work. Um, and, uh, like, like, it was one of the bands that really um, inspired me as, like, an early into that, like, borderline hardcore crust, like, Bay Area stuff. Um, and, like, I don't want to say it, but, it, like, the truth is probably... Um, Jawbreaker, Dear You is another one that I just like. Why wouldn't you want to say that, man? Because there's got to be other ones, too. <laughs> like, three is, three is really hard. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, I don't know. Yeah, final answer. I'll, good, do, I'll good go with you. those ones. Good for you. Very, very respectful. Uh, Redemption yeah. 87 uh, shows up often. Yeah, in these. Like if, sure. I, if I talk to someone from the Bay Area, they almost always say Redemption yeah. 87. And there's like a lot of really good Bay Area like metal that I've listened to and really love over the years too. Um, and like, you know, we could go on forever about music, but like that, those are the ones that really popped into my head right now. So. All right. I appreciate that. Thank you. I told you it was, it was hard. <laughs> it is. All right. As we're closing off, uh, first tell people how they can find 
you as a, as a business and then tell us about your band as we're closing. Sure. Out. Yeah. Um, I have a portfolio website page, um, uh, sign dash science-wonders.com is probably the easiest landing point. And that's just like pretty straightforward web page. Also Instagram, which is sign underscore syndicalist S Y N D I C A L I S T. Well, and, and so, you know, well, and for everyone, if, if you're hearing this, we'll add links uh, to all of, all of the, your stuff so that people can see it. Uh, tell us about your new band. Because, oh, yeah. You know, like, yeah. again, it's like how we even know each totally. other is through music. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So tell us about the new band. Yeah. Um, so I'm doing a new band with, uh, you know, Dwayne and Ross, um, former members of Allegiance, and Mike Quirk, too. He was also in Allegiance, and like he also played in Set Your Goals, and Joey played Skin, uh, Skin Like Iron, and uh, currently is drumming for King Woman. All of it is like, you know, hardcore, hardcore adjacent, whatever. Um, like, really solid group of people, and we're playing, like, really just like what we want to play, um, which is probably hardcore inspired, but more like post hardcore, even like weird Bay Area punk inspired, like a little bit Jawbreaker, a little bit like Crimpshine and like 15 and like that like 90s Gilman-y stuff that everybody really like resonates with, um, especially growing up, you know, in and around the Bay Area, I think in the 90s, like, you know, a lot of mixed bill show, you couldn't go to any shows without hearing that stuff and having it in your bones. So it's super fun to play that. Um, it's like, I wouldn't say that it's not aggressive because it is, but like, it's just different. So maybe it's a more mature vibe. Um, and I really love, love doing it. So we're playing our first show tomorrow. What's the name of the band? Uh, it's called Caged View. Okay, so everybody, uh, they just finished a demo that they're going to have out as well. And again, we'll put links and everything in there. Uh, Pat, this was an awesome conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. We hit a lot of, you know, weird ups and downs. It was great. It was a I good conversation. Good. I yeah. feel really good. Anything yeah. you want to say as we're closing off? Um, yeah, I don't think so. I think, yeah, we covered a lot. I'm like... Ready to like take a nap, I think. <laughs> awesome, man. All right, everyone. I'll see you in the outro. And Mike, drop the beat.